right, it's the Foghorn. You know what that means. It's time for the Canvas Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, our guest this week is Emma Salisbury, a British PhD candidate who argues in a recent War on the Rocks piece that when looking at how naval planning fits with future requirements, it's important to think about two concepts, the military industrial complex and innovation. We will discuss the priors and prejudice associated with naval force planning in our next segment. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. Shipbuilders, Austell, USA, garnered the biggest U.S. government shipbuilding contract up for bid this year, when on June 30th, it was awarded the U.S. Coast Guard contract to build up to 11 offshore patrol cutters. The deal is worth up to $3.3 billion for the Mobile, Alabama, based shipyard, which is transitioning from building all aluminum independence class littoral combat ships and expeditionary fast transports to steel production. Austell beat out competitors Huntington Ingalls, Bollinger, and Eastern Shipbuilding Group for the OPC contract, known as Stage 2 of the Offshore Patrol Cutter Program. Eastern Shipbuilding is already building the first four cutters under a contract awarded in 2016, but numerous issues have stymied construction, including the impact of a major hurricane in 2018 that devastated Eastern Shipyards in Panama City, Florida. Eastern received a $325 million contract in April to build the fourth cutter, but the first OPC Argus, WMSM 915, is not expected to be launched until late this year or early in 2023. Altogether, the Coast Guard plans to buy a total of 25 of the 365-foot-long offshore patrol cutters. In war news, Russia on June 29th withdrew its forces from Snake Island off the Ukrainian coast, calling it a gesture of goodwill. Russia took the tiny but strategic island shortly after invading Ukraine on February 24th in a famous incident where Ukrainian defenders told the Russians what they could do with themselves. But since occupying the island, the Russians have been under near constant attack and suffered many losses, including that of their Black Sea flagship, the missile cruiser Moskva. The Russian withdrawal does not affect the ongoing blockade of civilian and commercial shipping in and out of Ukraine, which continues unabated. NATO on June 30th wrapped up its two-day summit meeting in Madrid, Spain of member nations with results that NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg called truly transformational. Members approved the applications of Sweden and Finland to join the alliance, dramatically altering the strategic scene in the Baltic Sea. NATO is also deepening relationships with partner nations in the Indo-Pacific region. President Joe Biden attended the conference and announced that two additional U.S. destroyers will be based at Rota, Spain, where four U.S. Navy destroyers already are forward deployed. And under NATO's new force model, Britain is making available armed forces that include its aircraft carriers and F-35B Joint Strike Fighters to NATO's Supreme Allied Commander Europe, as well as to the new Allied Reaction Force. A Chinese three-ship surface group circumnavigated Japan for two weeks, ending June 30th, the latest in the series of provocative military moves by the Chinese Navy and Air Force. The Chinese warship, led by the big Type 55 destroyer Lhasa, were closely monitored throughout the demonstration by the Japanese Self-Defense Forces. And the USS George H.W. Bush Carrier Strike Group certified to deploy on June 30th after a month-long pre-deployment exercise. 
The composite training unit exercise, or CompUX, involved the Carrier, Cruiser Lady Golf, Destroyers Nizza, Farragut, Truxton, and Delbert D. Black, Carrier Air Wing 7, the Italian frigate Cayo Duilio, and submarines from Brazil and Colombia. The Bush's Carrier Strike Group 10 is expected to relieve the Harry S. Truman Carrier Strike Group, now on station in the Mediterranean Sea. And that's a look at just some of this week's naval news. All right, it's time to move to the discussion portion of the podcast. We are very lucky today to have Emma Salisbury, a PhD candidate at Birkbeck College and at the University of London. Uh, Emma's research focuses on defense research and development in the United States and military industrial complex. Emma caught our attention with a recent article that she had in War on the Rocks entitled Priors and Prejudice, Planning the U.S. Navy's Future. And so that's what we're hoping to chat with Emma about today. Emma, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So Emma, I'll, um, I'll ask the first question. Um, talk a little bit about Priors and Prejudice, the article, and you know maybe some of the arguments that you lay out. What, what do you mean about um, you know, when looking at the Navy's future, what does priors and prejudice imply and how do they help you um, sort of chart out where the Navy goes in the next 30 years? Well, my research focuses on the military industrial complex. And I think it's very easy for those who work within the complex to become very siloed uh, in their decision-making and to only really see what they have always seen for the past 20, 30 years. So what I think is important is for each part of the complex to be able to look at those priors, challenge their assumptions, and maybe take a fresh look at how the Navy does its planning and does its procurement. So I this, this comes into play with the US Navy in particular uh, when looking at ship procurement, because obviously the lead times are very long, the planning has to be done very far in advance. So it's very important for them to get it right. And especially in the current strategic context, we have China, we have Russia, we have so many things going on. It's very important for the U.S. Navy to get it right. From your perspective, what what are some of the obstacles or what precludes them from getting it right? The problem with how the military industrial complex works is entrenched interests. So each part of the complex will obviously act in its own interests when making these kind of decisions. So for naval procurement, the US Navy will have its own interests. It wants to get a good chunk of the defense budget. It wants to give its personnel what they need to be able to fight the wars of the future. But also it wants to make sure that the capabilities are the best they can be technologically. So it wants to be able to innovate and to have the latest technologies into its capabilities. You also have Congress who want to be able to make sure that defence procurement is not spiralling out of control, but also they want to make sure that defence procurement is cited in their own constituencies and states. So each congressman each has a rep- it represents a district or a state and they may have existing industry in those places, or they may be promised that industry will come to them if a certain program is given funding. And then you also have the interest of industry itself. If they have a particular program that they want the US Navy to procure because that will give them contracts for many years into the future, they will then lobby the Navy and lobby Congress to get those things put in place. So each of those entrenched interests work in a cycle. 
And I think it's important for everybody just to take a step back and realise what is happening and make sure that this doesn't mean that the US Navy is getting the wrong capabilities or getting capabilities it doesn't need and wasting money that could be better used elsewhere. I really liked the way you kind of matter of factly laid out things that that are important to think about again um, from from time to time. And when you talk about those interests, if those interests are able to be synchronized or, or you know, to the degree that they're not out of um, out of whack, uh, it, it's almost like you, you can get the things that you want. But the more that they're out of whack, the more Congress has a view that's different than the Navy, that's different than industry, um, you, you run into problems. You may never be fully aligned across all three, but what can you do to better align those three interests so that the the end product is something that you, you know everybody feels good about and most importantly um, is delivered at a time when that capability is most useful? I think it's very important to have two things, communication and understanding. So communication-wise, it's very important that everybody knows what everybody else wants. Congress needs to know what the Navy wants. It needs to understand that. The Department of Defense needs to know and understand. Industry needs to know and understand. Everybody has to understand each other. And that will only happen if there is open communication. And it's the same with transparency. You can't have open communication if things are being hidden. You need to be able to see what's going on, understand everybody's interests. And it's only then that you can pick out these areas where something's going wrong, something could be done better. So I think that is the most important thing is communication and transparency. So in your in, in your research, the last 25 years, let's go back to the, the, the back end of the 90s. Um, a lot has changed, certainly in the, in the American shipbuilding landscape since then it, it is an, it is an ever shifting landscape um things don't stay the same they don't have necessarily happen that change that fast people don't aren't always aware of it but over time over five ten years dramatic changes have taken place one was the consolidation of shipbuilders in the late 90s early aughts uh several there was a a spate of companies buying other companies and in turn being bought again um, and you resulted in really only a handful of shipbuilders able to build large ships for the U.S. Navy. The, 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 the two biggest are General Dynamics and uh, Huntington Ingalls today. Um, that's what's emerged. There are some smaller ones. I mean, in these trends, what, what, is, what has come out at you in this? And, and for better or worse, what's the, what are some of the benefits of that? Of that? What, have, what have people lost with that sort of construct? I think with the consolidation in shipbuilding, a good thing is that you do consolidate experience. So these big shipbuilders will have experienced staff, they will have experienced engineers and people, frankly, who are experienced in dealing with the Department of Defence. I mean, that's an expertise in itself. And those companies are able to work with the DOD and with the Navy because they have a deep understanding. They've done it before. They know the process. They know all of the bureaucracy that's involved and that does mean that things can run more smoothly however on the flip side of that if you have two or three or four big companies 
who crowd out the market for anyone else, you may not get that kind of fresh thinking that can come from a smaller company or a newer company. So that could stymie innovation if you only listen to the views and the the requirements of the big companies. You may miss something fantastic from a new startup that's just come in the last couple of years, has this great idea, but is put off by the massive amount of bureaucracy involved in working with the DoD and just can't get their voice heard over the noise of places like Huntington Eagles. So what are the trends you're seeing now? What's Where are things moving? In, I, uh, I think now, I think now the, the big companies, both in shipbuilding and elsewhere, have had a great amount of dominance over sort of the 2000s into the 2010s. But now that things in the defense space are moving more towards technology to do with software, automation, artificial intelligence, robotics, that kind of thing. A lot of those technologies are being developed in the civilian space. They're not specifically defense technologies. So you're seeing a lot of large civilian tech companies start to move into the defense space. So like Google, Microsoft, Amazon Web Services, and so on. And I think that's really changing the nature of the defense industry. These companies, they don't need defense contracts. They make so much profit in the civilian world that they don't need them. They're not traditional defense companies. So they bring a new way of working and they are bringing technology that has been developed in the civilian world and is globalized technology and mapping that onto the defense space rather than technology being developed specifically for the military. So those are the trends I'm seeing at the moment. Um, It's a bit too early to tell how that will pan out, but I think that's going to continue as a trend for the next couple of decades at least. You talked about prejudice in your War on the Rocks article. What what, what are some of the prejudices you see? What is what what is driving a lot of these decisions just based on that's attitudes, entrenched attitudes? I think there is a prejudice within certain parts of the Navy towards the traditional defense companies. I think a lot of people feel comfortable working with them and feel like they are understood. There's also the revolving door of personnel between these places. You know, lots of Navy personnel, once they reach the end of their service, will go and work for the big defense companies. I think there's a comfort there in working with them, and that can lead to some prejudice in dealing with the smaller companies. I think there may also be a bit of prejudice in Congress um, in favor of giving the Navy what they want, but not necessarily everything they want. I think they don't want to be seen to be throwing money willy-nilly at the Navy, but that may lead them to be a bit too harsh when looking at budgets. I don't know whether that's something that could be improved with more communication from the Navy to be able to explain what these capabilities are for. Um, but it's something that I think is is going to continue. Um, you mentioned in your article, you kind of take a swipe at uh, innovation. Um, and uh, I, I mean, uh, my eyes and ears sort of perked up as I as I read that. Um, do you think that too much uh, that that all three of those stakeholders, the Navy, Congress, and industry, are they hanging too heavily on innovation? Sort of this hope that somebody, one of the other three, will figure something out. 
Um, and, and that prevents them from kind of doing the nug work today that, that they need to I, explain your, your swipe and why you, you seem to be a little, uh, skeptical on, uh, you say sexy words of, you know, like innovation, but I've heard people call them tin words, but I mean, you, you know, they're the words of the day. Yeah, for sure. It's, I think my problem with the word innovation and with the concept of innovation is that it is very often seen uncritically as a good thing. You put the word innovation into your document, into your argument, into your speech, and everyone thinks, wow, fantastic, we're innovating, this is great. But innovation is quite a woolly concept, and it also doesn't always mean progress. So you can innovate something and change it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's better. You can innovate something, make it marginally better, but for a price tag of $5 billion, is it worth it? So what the problem I have with innovation is that it's touted as this thing that will solve every single problem. Something is happening. We are moving towards progress. We are innovating. But you need to look at what that actually means. So each of the three parts of the complex, I think, need to stop relying on innovation as this buzzword and actually really critically look at how they're innovating, where they're innovating, and whether that innovation is worth it. You talk about a number of these programs and, and you've looked at a lot of things. If you had to talk about things that went wrong, most just about everybody would start talking about LCS. And I'll tell you right now, if you want to talk about LCS, we there goes the rest of our lives because we can keep talking about it that long, at least in, at least in my what's left of my lifespan. Um, that's well-known and, and extremely well-trodden ground on any number of levels. Outside of the LCS fiasco, um, what has struck you, two things, what has struck you as a, an outstanding example of a program full of let's not do that again lessons, and another program that was relatively successful despite all the obstacles that are inherent in any government acquisition program. So for better or worse, both, what's the Emma, Emma Salisbury scorecard say? Well, on the downside, I would put the F-22, hmm. which again was a product- F-22, the Air Force yeah. fighter, the, F the stealth fighter F-22. Exactly, yeah. So the sheer amount of money that was spent on it for an aircraft that has never flown in combat, I think is shocking. Um, again, it was an example of the different parts of the military industrial complex merging together their entrenched interests to create this enormously expensive program that just kept running until Gates had the, the bravery to terminate it. And even then he couldn't terminate it straight away. He had to give a bit of a sop to the the companies involved in the production. Defense even Secretary though, Bob Gates. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and even though the F-35 was just around the corner, they needed something to prop them up until the F-35 started. So again, it's it's one of those where it's not necessary to build that many of them. It wasn't necessary to spend that much money but everything just sort of came together in this perfect storm to create this very, very expensive program for a plane that is stunningly beautiful, but not really that useful. Um, on the successful-ish side, I would probably go for 
the Jedi program for cloud computing for the, the DOD, um, which is an interesting example because it does bring in these new civilian tech companies. So there was a competition between Microsoft and Amazon Web Services for it, but it ended up being mired in legal trouble uh, due to President Trump saying some uh, unwelcome things about uh, Jeff Bezos and Amazon accusing the DOD of being uh, biased against Amazon's bid on that basis. So although the first iteration of that did fall through, the DOD has managed to resurrect it and have a proper competition for cloud computing. So the concept itself is great. It's something the DOD needs. It's something the military needs. It had some teething troubles, but I think ultimately will be successful. One last question. Um, as I've thought about these issues, the I guess the variable in the equation that um, I struggle the most with is that of time, right? Um, in some cases, you want to adjust all the other variables so that you maximize time, but it seems like when you have too much time, uh, the rest of the variables kind of fall apart, right, if you will. Um, and so I, I wonder that as we move more and more into a competitive phase on which time is critical, both in terms of fielding programs and in terms of, you know, carrying out operations. Do you see that as a driver that helps things or hurts things or both um, as we as we look at these, you know, three key players in uh, the naval military industrial complex? I think that will be a really interesting thing to see because it will very much depend on how the military and its bureaucracy deal with the issue of this constrained time. So it could become the, the fire in which something great is forged. It could mean that people become more agile, more flexible, and more able to, to tolerate the small failures that will come along with doing something quickly. Or this kind of constrained time could cause everything to fail and everybody could be completely unable to deal with it. Things could go horribly wrong, or it could be somewhere in the middle. So it will very much be up to the military, the DOD and Congress to make sure that they are not overwhelmed by this kind of strategic atmosphere. All right. Well, Emma, this has been really interesting, folks. We've been talking with Emma Salisbury, a London-based PhD candidate who has been studying the U.S. military industrial complex. And my goodness, that is a talk about going down a deep hole. That is a that is a that is a serious challenge. But Emma, uh, we really appreciate you coming on today and, uh, and and we very much appreciate your independent views on our situation. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Now hear this. Now hear this. All right, Squawk Box. Now a bit of a holiday message from Mr. Savello. Well, on behalf of Chris and the Cavus Ships podcast, let me be one of the first to wish you all a happy 4th of July. I hope all of our listeners enjoy a restful long weekend. I hope you get to have fun and enjoy time with family and friends. Maybe take in a fireworks show or watch a baseball game. Birthdays present a unique opportunity to reflect on the goods and bads that life has thrown your way. It's a chance to identify what you'd like to do differently, where you can improve and be better. And it's also an opportunity to be thankful for the blessings and goodness that you have in your life. Maybe even become a bit sentimental as you think about the last year traveling around the earth. This weekend, many of us will share a common birthday as America celebrates the big 246. 
I hope each of you will take time to reflect on what's great about our country, what we can do to help make it even better, and perhaps most importantly, to give thanks for all the good we share together as Americans. Each and every day, but especially on this birthday weekend, I'm very thankful for our Navy and the amazing men and women who help keep our country free and prosperous. Yes, it's necessary at times to complain about rusty ships or the need for a bigger fleet, but it's equally important to remember how lucky we are to be Americans, to have a common connection to our maritime forces, and to share a commitment to keep our country and the waterways that feed us open and free. On this birthday weekend, may God bless the United States, our friends and allies, the women and men of our Navy, and most importantly, the listeners of this podcast. All right. Well, thank you, Chris. And that does it for this week. Happy Canada Day and happy 4th of July. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Hey.